Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We acknowledge Indigenous Elders, past, present and emerging on this Invasion Day, otherwise known as Australia Day Eve. On today's show, we have a panel discussion with four Indigenous people who have been involved in the Netavoji campaign to be launched tomorrow. It features stickers for smartphones that aim to educate and reflect pride about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. In the studio, I have William Anger from Mode Black, who designed the campaign. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having us. It's a great pleasure. On the line, we have Associate Professor Dan McCauley from the Centre for Improving Health Services for Aboriginal Children and Families, Isaac. On the line, we also have Aboriginal Affairs, Health and Education expert Tracy Edwards and Denisha Duff, who has a distinguished background in Indigenous health, education and community engagement. It's great to have you all on board. Will, let's just start with you. Tell us about what the Natavoji stickers look like and what are some of the aspects of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture that you hope the campaign will encourage people to engage about? We have stickers in both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag colours, so we have some um, options in there. We have the two flags in a stylized sketch, which is quite cool. We have currently in the first pack, which is a small free sample pack um, available for download. It is, um, we have tapping sticks, we have a few um, slogans like too deadly, too lovely. To what extent did you work with Ben, Denisha and Tracy to develop this campaign? How did you all come together? We all um, work very closely on this. Um, I'm a graphic designer, so the process is like um, we all generally meet um, from the beginning and like with a client or with a group, we discuss the brief and what's to be created. Generally go away and do a bit of research into the item that needs to be designed and then come back together, present the ideas and discuss and make any further changes and then present again and refine it until it's sort of exactly what we want. Awesome stuff. Now, Dan, over to you. You're the director of ISAC, the Centre for Improving Health Services for Aboriginal Children and Families in WA. What are some of the major health issues that exist for Indigenous children uh, in Melbourne and how does that compare to, say, the situation for them in, in a place like Perth? Remarkably similar really? on um, some sort of key indicators. Um, one of those key indicators that we use to measure uh, maternal health and early child health is um, low birth weight. Um, and the rates of low birth weight in Victoria and Western Australia are remarkably similar. So 11.1% of all births are low birth weight in Victoria and 11.9% in of all births in Western Australia are low birth weight for Aboriginal kids. But that's, you know two times the percentage that non-Indigenous kids um, suffer from. How big are the health gaps, uh, Dan, for Indigenous kids uh, compared to non-Indigenous kids uh, in Victoria and Perth? Like, how do the, how do the two vary? Uh, Westerners, because we have um, do our research statewide, so Western Australia is the largest state, so we've got more 
communities, Aboriginal communities in isolated areas. In Victoria, not so much because you're quite a small state. But um, similar, very similar outcomes um, when compared to non-Indigenous um, children, it's usually around one and a half to two times the rate of uh, certain issues like, um, you know, dental health, ear health, hospitalisations, um, very similar. But it, it, it's much higher in Indigenous kids and non-Indigenous kids across the two states and across the country. Denisha, you grew up in Thursday Island and you're from both Aboriginal <coughs> and Torres Strait Islander descent. What are some of the major cultural differences between the two? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Torres Strait and... I really identify as a Torres Strait Islander and that's the way that, you know, I live and think and really identify and it's it's very different from Aboriginal culture. They're very two culturally distinct identities in Australia and the Torres Straits is, you know, the northernmost point of Australia between uh, Cape York and Papua New Guinea and there are such visual differences that you will see in terms of, you know, the dance language particularly um, and there are many different languages in Australia, Aboriginal languages and can I get a plug in that it's actually the International Year of Indigenous Languages, so it's a time to celebrate and, and look at what your local language is. Um, but, you know, other distinct um, factors between the two are, you know, around dress, you know, cultural dress, and there's been such a difference in histories. Um, Torres Strait Islanders were trading with Macassans um, and, you know, very heavy, heavily Melanesian descent, you know, uh, sea, seafaring stories and, you know, um, stories of the stars and that sort of stuff as well too. So I'm just fascinated by the Torres Strait and its culture and its languages. Mm. How many languages are there among Indigenous people in the Torres Strait? Well, there are there are really two uh, living and practising languages, um, but there are a number of different dialects as well too. So there's, um, I think there's about 17 inhabited islands in the Torres Strait. And so, um, you know, you're pretty much a, a captive audience and, can, and, and if you're a native speaker, you can speak to, you know, a lot of people who are living on your island as well too. So that sort of, you know, language um, evolution, you know, passing on and teaching is still very strong up there. So, Tanisha, you have a background in Indigenous health promotion. What are some of the key healthy lifestyle campaigns that you've worked on for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Well, my background is actually in Indigenous um, health policy and program development. But during in my day job, I'm managing the Deadly Choices, uh, which is our Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander preventative health brand. And deadly means good um, to, a lot, to a lot of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. But um, that's our sort of street slang language, meaning, you know, that's something good in southeast Queensland. So, and Deadly Choices really aims to improve the health of our mob. So, to stop smoking, to get active and to eat better. And some of the key messages around, you know, a healthy lifestyle choice is around, you know, a Deadly Choice is a healthy choice. What's your Deadly Choice to communities? And such things as, you know, have a piece of fruit that's deadly. So what makes a health campaign work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Like what kind of issues do you really need to consider that are perhaps unique to, to those communities? I guess, you know, just speaking from South East Queensland, um, because we really designed it to suit South East Queensland, I think that's one of the aspects that you need to consider is, you know, the geographical and cultural differences of who you're trying to reach. Um, the strength of our campaigns in South East Queensland has been because it's designed by our mob. Um, we're all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in, um, in, my, in my area where I work. And so we're really designing something for our own communities. And we use our own language and we really test it amongst ourselves as well too. Is that a, is that a good thought? Is that 
a message that you understand, is this going to work? That's some of the other things to consider. And I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but it's, you know, really considering who you're trying to reach, um, how do you get them involved in the process, um, really knowing your audience and how they engage with a, you know, for us, you know, social media has been an important vehicle for getting our messages out there because a lot of our young followers are really avid users of um, social media, Facebook, Insta, Twitter, you know, Snapchat, all of that as well too. So if you were to design, Denisha, a, a health campaign aimed at queer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, what would that campaign be? I wouldn't actually presume that I would know how to do a health campaign, let alone for um, queer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. But one thing, I guess, that I've learned from my experience is that, you know, you need to understand, you know, who you're trying to reach and really get them involved. So, I mean, that will be the start of a process if you're going to develop a health message is to actually engage with, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people out there who, you know, who are queer and who are in the community and, and to identify what their issues are and to design a campaign. Tracy, over to you. You're in WA as well. Uh, of course, that's where Dan's also located. Now, you've worked across the health and education sectors within Aboriginal Affairs for over 18 years, including a focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and protocols. What are some of the key protocols within Indigenous communities that non-Indigenous people are perhaps often oblivious to? Thanks, James. The, I guess cultural protocols um, really are about best, uh, best practice, um, particularly in respecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people, but also their beliefs and practices. They're both informal um, and formal ways of, um, of how we acknowledge and engage and communicate with each other, but also with others. And as Denisha was just saying, um, you know, the, the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture of uh, individual communities um, each, you know, each group have their own set of protocols, um, and that that stems down to things like um, a welcomes to country, um, an acknowledgement of countries, um, and people understanding who um, and and um, how that's done in the in the community, um, and at particular events or um, occasions, and it can take many forms in terms of singing, dancing, um, smoking ceremonies, for example. Um, but I guess um, some of the, you know, an example of a protocol um, that people may not be fully aware of why it's done this way, but sometimes the name, um, voices, um, footage, video footage and photographs, for example, of people who've passed away can often be restricted, um, particularly in the media um, as well, and that's usually during a time of mourning. Um, and that the, the length of time that that can um, that that can be varies, and it's usually determined by the family or the community where um, people are from. Um, and then this also um, kind of extends to things like um, warnings on websites or at the beginning of films, for example. But it really depends on the context um, and the purpose of um, uh, of, the, of what the product is. Um, and obviously the people that are involved. And so sometimes when we're telling stories um, from our elders and we're passing that information down, it is important to acknowledge those people um, and their position in our community, but also it's out of respect for the family too, so that that, that process people are aware that that's happening. But yeah, so that, I guess that's, that's a good example. So Tracy, what are some of the protocols that perhaps that are perhaps unique to your mob? Are there any particular cultural protocols uh, that are different for your mob compared to, say, others? I know Indigenous communities are incredibly diverse and, and certainly non-homogeneous. 
Yeah, so um, so I was um, born and raised here in Noongar country, but my family is actually from uh, New South Wales, so um, I'm a Koori. Um, but having grown up in Noongar country, I guess that, yeah, the diversity really is around um, languages and just knowing who your elders are and who the, the traditional owners are, the people that you actually get to go to. It's important when you travel, I guess, as well as to, to understand who those people are and which mob they represent. So um, it's really important for people um, when you make those connections and it's all, it's all about relationships as well and, and making sure that when you do um, go to communities that you do kind of make sure that the elders are greeted first and you, um, you know, you're paying attention to who they are and how they how they're connected in that community, um, and that's you know a lot of it's done um, informally. But I guess um, there are you know formal protocols in which different government departments have when they're engaging with particular communities. Um, research extends to particular. Um, practices and um, Dan might be able to mention more specifically on that but those kinds of things there are specific you know protocols and I guess guidelines for the way in which people conduct which they behave in which they conduct themselves and just being inclusive and respectful um, of people. So Dan what can you add to that particularly in relation to research? I think with research we are guided quite strongly by a really important set of national um, values and ethics guidelines and a document called Keeping Research on Track, which is a document which was developed by the National Health and Medical Research Council to actually get researchers to engage with Aboriginal communities earlier on than what we've, what has normally occurred when research has occurred in Australia. So it's really around making sure that Aboriginal people are really involved and have some sense of ownership and direction of the research project. And that may be uh, uh, with getting Aboriginal people involved in actually determining what the research question is. So sitting down with the mob and asking, what are some of the health issues that are important to you that we could do some research on? Have you noticed an improvement in uh, the government's response to Indigenous, Indigenous affairs in WA since the Labor government came to power? after many years of the coalition ruling? To be honest, I actually don't think I can say. Right. I think um, I think both governments have had quite um, good and important um, interactions and involvements with Aboriginal people. Both sides are going to have their positives and negatives, but I think what's been quite good in WA is that Aboriginal people have um, uh, been, been involved and consulted on a sort of major policy directions such as in health and education. So that's something that I think is cut across politics, which is which is what's needed. So, Will, the uh, the campaign is being launched tomorrow on yes. the 26th of January. I'm assuming that date is no coincidence. It's not. <laughs> Tell us about the launch. Well, um, we've just launched our Pack One Native OG, which has currently 12 um, stickers in it because we added a few, including Survival Day and Always Was, Always Will Be. Yeah, we just want to create these packs. I mean, we're starting with a small one. We're going to branch out into larger packs that are going to have all kinds of imagery and graphics in it. Overall, it's to just create a conversation with people, to get communities talking, um, to educate people, to learn more about Indigenous culture. Yeah, that's where we're starting. It's sort of our first product, and what we do plan to do is expand into different marketing communications areas, education, health. So 
Yeah, give us a call. <laughs> now, of course, tomorrow is Invasion Day, uh, otherwise known as Australia Day. Is there anything that you'd like to say, any of you, about that and the emotions that come up for you? Because I know it's a polarising debate. I guess I want to ask you what, what your reaction is when you hear that, that term, Australia Day, on a date that is such a, a, a painful day for many Indigenous people and certainly in the past, you know, wreaked absolute havoc when, when you know, white settlement and colonisation began. Denisha will jump in. I think that's a very difficult, obviously, you know, the, the silence is because it's very difficult and yeah. it's very polarising. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, it is, you've got to recognise the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experience in this country. Um, there are some certainly, you know, within families that I know who are proud to be, you know, Australian, who have fought for this country. But, you know, the issues there around, you know, recognition and celebration and, and turning that into a positive dialogue as well too, to look at, you know, we've survived, our cultures have survived and let's celebrate that. And, you know, broader than just the Australia Day, you know, debate and the discussions about, you know, how do we actually engage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a lot better now in our Australian society and economies and, and future. And I guess, you know, all the emotion around Australia Day makes that engagement a bit harder. Like it's probably easier on other days to have that conversation. What about Tracy and you, Dan? Is there anything that you'd like to add in relation to that? The the word there and I guess what we've represented in our, um, our Native OG stickers is in terms of survival. And, um, you know, while there is a lot of discussion um, you know, very passionate discussion that happens on social media. Um, I think that the the point of us, uh, you know, launching these stickers is that we really want to, you know, share and educate and reflect proudly on aspects of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, which, you know, is the oldest living culture in the world. And it's something that all Australians, not just uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but all Australians should be proud of. And I think that the way in going forward is for everybody to understand each other, but also celebrate the differences, not just focus on the negative that's a way forward and I think that's part, that's partly why having stickers and having these kind of visual representations of our culture on social media which is quite you know a popular way of expressing uh, yourself I think it's important to have that kind of visual which we haven't necessarily had before. Dan you were going to say something as well? Yeah I was actually just going to say that I think that uh, when this incredibly polarizing issue comes up around this time of year it's really a, a good time to actually start conversations. And that's one thing that's like, for me, is a positive that we can actually start unpacking history of Australia. We can actually educate some of our colleagues and friends around, you know, the experiences, the different experiences that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had over the years. Let's talk, let's be respectful, let's remember that we're from a multicultural, we're, you know, many multicultural backgrounds with the Indigenous people as being the first, and as Tracy said, the longest living continuous culture in the world. So let's embrace that and let's communicate and share our stories. Absolutely. And of course, your campaign being launched tomorrow is a great way to have that conversation and to do that sharing. Thank you all so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been really great to get your perspectives. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Been chatting with Will Anger, Denisha Duff, Tracy Edwards and Dan McCauley about the new Natavoji campaign being launched tomorrow by Mode Black. It is 4.30. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Black Fire.
G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. It's 21 to 5. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Kirsty Miller is a footballer and pentathlete, and she's represented Australia at the elite level. Kirsty is also a transitioned woman who works as a diversity and inclusion educator in sport, and she's a former prison governor in Broken Hill. A very warm welcome to Kirsty Miller. Kirsty, hello. James, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure. Now, look, I've been reading about you and I was really, really struck by your work as a a former prison governor. Tell us about that first day when you walked into the Broken Hill Prison as Kirsty. Well, well, I was actually the governor of the Maximum Security Jail out here, which is an Indigenous Pacific program. And prior to me walking in this day, I walked in the, the previous 10 years as Warren. No one knew that I was Kirsty within those walls until the morning I arrived for work and I started work about 6.30 in the morning but I got there at 4.30 and sat in my car and the first time in my life I was presenting to my work colleagues and the inmates who I was in charge of that I was a woman and I got my hair permed overnight. It was a really bad perm. It was a bad one since. And I finally got the courage. I knocked on the door and, and I said, my name's Kirsty now. I'll, I'll be in my office. Yeah, that was probably the, the hardest thing I ever do in my life was walk through that gate, but I'm glad I did. So tell us about the reactions that you got. It sounds like everybody was pretty accepting. Yeah, well, you've got to think this is Broken Hill. It's not Darlinghurst or, or St Kilda. So, you know, it might be the home of Priscilla, but back in 2000, Broken Hill was still pretty much a rough mining town, you know. That, so, so it was big news in the community, number one, that, that the local jail is now run by a, a transgender girl. But within about half an hour of me going into work, I received a phone call from the then Commissioner, Ron Woodham. Ron Woodham would be renowned as the, the toughest crew in the history of Australian corrections. This guy was the only prison officer to go from a base grade all the way through to commissioner level. And he's the guy that promoted me. And prior to this day, I was his golden head boy. And Ron rang me. He said, what the hell's going on in Broken Hill? And I said, I'm a woman, sir. And he said, get yourself and your wife down to Sydney today. So they flew us down to Sydney and we attended head office and Ron Wooden, the last time he would have cried, would have been in the Bathurst riots back in 1974 when he was leading the riots from the tear gas. He was a hard man, didn't cry very often, but I explained my life story to Ron and and he had tears coming down his eyes. And he's a bit of a character. He did say to me, pardon the pun, Kirsty, but he said, you do have the biggest balls in the department. And unfortunately that's, one of the, unfortunately, that's one of the side effects of the because I didn't at that stage after 12 months of hormone treatment. But, um, yeah, Ron was amazing. But they did move me away from Broken Hill. Um, they thought Broken Hill wouldn't handle me. And they moved me to Sydney away from my family. So that was a bit of a problem. But from day one, the, the, the management, um, my fellow officers, and even the inmates, they were amazing. I was told by many inmates that I was always renowned for being a, a tough, honest screw, but how more honest can you be to the world to come out as who you really are in front of the jail? So it's never done me a wrong turn or it's never been a negative experience coming out in the workplace. Um, I was absolutely positive. And two and a half years later, I did achieve the Governor's Commissioner's Commendation of the Year. 
So um, you know, my performance in my duties didn't deteriorate just suddenly because I came out as who I truly was. I, I believe my performance duties actually improved because I didn't have the burden of who I was hiding in my own former cellular confinement that the previous part of my career, you know. So it's something, you know, the hardest thing I ever did walking through that gate, but the best thing I ever did in my life. Absolutely. So you've also competed at sport at the elite level and you've represented Australia in the pentathlon. Uh, first of all, tell us what that entails. The pentathlon is actually one of the oldest Olympic sports. It's been around since the first Olympics and it actually originated from from the medieval days. A pentathlete was designed to be the, the perfect king's messenger where you'd the first event would be the horse riding and you'd have to jump obstacles to deliver this message and so show jumping being the first event and then you may come to a river and you have to swim across the river and swimming being the second event and along the way you might have a fencing duel so fencing FAE is the third discipline and then you may have to run the rest of the way and running the fourth discipline and, and the last is pistol shooting where you might have to protect yourself to deliver the message it's been around since day one um, Australia just had their first ever gold medalist in Rio, Chloe Esposito. So, you know, it's very much a European sport, a sport that Australia doesn't get much funding in. But, yeah, I, I did represent Australia in the modern pentathlon. I was the youngest ever competitor to compete at a world championship at 14 years of age. And that was my second sport I'd actually represented Australia in. I was, prior to that, I was an Australian aquathon representative and I was an under-19 world champion back in 1979 at 15 years of age. And then came second in the open men's. And, but, you know, every race I won and every every lap I swam, it, it made it harder my gender dysphoria. Yeah, the more I got known, but, you know, it, as much as I love my sport, and I still do, you know, if I had been just that person in the corner, maybe I could have transitioned a lot earlier in my life because every lap or every race I won, I won as a transgender person. I was still a transgender person, even though I was worrying. And unfortunately, a lot of people dismiss the achievement for trans people pre-transition. That's all a part of us. We're born this way. Yeah, it's an amazing story that you've got. And I was going to I was going to say to you that, you know, to what extent did the discipline and focus required in the pentathlon actually help you with your transition? But it sounds like in some ways it made it so much harder. I excelled at sport from a very young age. I started playing rugby league at four years of age and, and I excelled very quickly in any sport that needed endurance or strength. I started out as a swimmer. When I was about 11 years of age, I had a disease in my knee which restricted my physical activity and, and I, I took to the water like a fish to water. You know, I was a natural swimmer and I was competed in New South Wales swimming teams, broke records and stuff, but it, it built a strong mind, you know, and it did give me an escape. Like, I didn't mind running 20-kilometre training runs because I could daydream about who I really was on my own and I liked swimming because I could put my head in the water and escape to my own little world, but... Every single lap I swam at least once, I thought, I'm trapped in the wrong body. So if I could have transitioned pre-puberty, I still would have been a good athlete, but I wouldn't have had the burden of gender dysphoria on my mind. Yeah, that, that I was suffering totally alone. There was no one, no one, when I was a 14, 15-year-old, and I got to travel around the world a lot. As a 15-year-old, my second trip to Europe, I actually had a one-month URL pass. I steamed it open and turned it into a seven, and, and as a 15-year-old, international athlete. I, I was travelling around trains on Europe by myself for seven months. Um, I got to live in, in San Antonio, Texas for about 18 months. I got to live and train in, in 
London with the British team um, and also in Germany. And sport really opened up a lot of doors for me throughout my whole life. And I'm glad as a transition woman that I'm still part of sport now. It's something that after my transition, I thought that would have to end. But you know, luckily, I've, I've found a sporting home out here and an accepting place to still play sport because you know, at times I lost most of my family, I lost most of my friends. And when I found a sporting home and a sporting family, that you know, quite often the trans people, they might be the only family they got. Absolutely. So tell us about the sport that you play now as a oh, transitioned wow. woman. I first played, and it hasn't been a great story from day one with the AFL. I, I started playing AFL women's football out here in Broken Hill in 2013 and at the same time soccer. From day one, soccer never been an issue about me being trans on the field. But early on in 2013 and, and me being the first, you know, I did expect some flat. But in the fifth game... Um, I was actually vilified on the field. I was accused of having AIDS and diseases and and, and asked, you know, threatened to show my genitalia. And, and and this come from our opponents on the other team, officials, the crowd. And and when I went off at the end of that game, I immediately read a report back in 2013. I said, number one, I don't want anyone to get into trouble. No one at all. But I want it investigated. I want it policies put in place that, and education, you know, make sure this doesn't happen again. But unfortunately, you know, my house was rocked that night. The abuse went from the football field to the community. And, and about five weeks later, the, the AFL in head office in Sydney finally stepped in after me suffering this alone for five weeks, me and my partner, Nikki, and, and they held landmark mediation sessions. Tom Harley, actually the head of Swans at the moment, he, he was the head of the AFL in New South Wales at the time, and Craig Bolt, the former Swans legend, and... They had mediation. Number one, they found that I did no wrongdoing. I was very passionate about the game. They said I deserved the same respect and, and, and opportunities as all others and the, and the same normal jargon that you get, you know, from a head office. And, but then there's a day it took me another three and a half years to get back on the football field. And, it, and my partner, Nikki, also was outed from not only the AFL but her own soccer team where she was a life member simply because, you know, no one wanted it because it was too hard to have a trans person and... So Nikki and I thought, what are we going to do? And I didn't want to be known as the first trans person to play AFL football that sued someone or got someone in trouble. So Nikki and I thought, we're going to meet everyone in this town one by one. And we went and got our taxi license. And when we started driving a taxi cab, you know, one fair at a time, barriers were broken down. We, we, we'd become wheelchair-assisted taxi drivers. So we took the disabled people around town, the, the ex-miners, the, the old people, you know, and they were the first to fall in love with Kirsty and Nikki, and, and in about 2016, a, a massive shift had happened out here that 99.9% of the town were behind myself and my partner, and, and no one was liking the AFL. And at the start of the 2017 season, we get a knock at the door from one of the local AFL clubs, and they're like, please come and play with us. And, and this club had formal policies in place that they welcomed diversity and tolerance and said no to drugs, and we went back on the field. We've been back two years now, James, and and it's total acceptance. People understand these issues. There's, um, that this town, without a doubt, Broken Hill now, if you're a transgender person suffering anywhere in the world and you want to play football, you want to play lawn bowls, you want to get a job at the local club or pub, come to Broken Hill. This town will save you. Like, it's amazing. 2013, it was like that fictional scene in the in the Priscilla movie with the profanities on the bus, you know? So our biggest festival in the year now is the drag festival, the Broken Hill. 
It's you know, gorgeous. our football clubs have um, drag nights here now, and, and you can be whatever you want to be out here on or off the football field. It's like, without doubt, my greatest achievement in my whole life. You know, better than any world title we won or, or, or premiership or Without doubt, that and, and seeing the birth of my three daughters, that, that was the greatest moment of my life. And it seems like you caused that change yourself within the community just by talking to people and Nikki talking to people and you both showing a human face to, to gender diversity. Humanising the, the issues. Um, an example on the sporting field, like people that hadn't, the girls that hadn't played, Kirsty, they, they heard stories that formerly Warren Rugged, country guy, you know, a superintendent and... and a, and a good boxer and all this stuff, and they expected I was going to be six foot six and and have big hairy legs and and whatever. You know, I don't don't know what they expected, but I had a girl actually go to tackle me one game last year, and and she brushed off me, but she touched my skin, one of my opponents, and she goes, "Excuse me," she said, "You've got the softest skin I've ever felt." She said, "How come? I thought you'd have rough skin." And then I explained to her, I said, "No, the hormones don't just change you on the outside; they change." the way we smell, the way our skin is produced, our circulation. and We get the same things just to delay puberty. That's why I've got soft skin. So that was just one little barrier broke down. So this girl goes around town now and says, Kirsty ain't a big muscled person. She's got the soft skin. That's the barrier broken down in a game of football. And are you still playing football? I'm still playing. We won the premiership last year. I'm 54 years of age now. I'm not the oldest in my team by a long shot. One of, one of the girls in my team is the same age as she made the rep side last year, but I'm as keen as mustard. I'm a full forward. I'm going to try and get the leading goal scorer this year. I'm going to work harder than ever. And, and yeah, my partner, Nikki, she's definitely the star of the competition out here. She played soccer for Australia, Nikki, and she scored the first two goals in our grand final last year. So, so yeah, I can't wait to get back on the field. And tell us about the work that you're doing currently in relation to inclusion and diversity. Um, basically, with that, I, I do a lot of Ask Me Anything forums online. I've been working with the Australian Human Rights and Sports Commissions and the major sporting codes in Australia. They call it COMPS, the Cricket, the Rugby Union. And we've been working on developing federal guidelines in recent times. They're in draft form at the moment, and they're going to give practical guidelines to all sports that will know how to address the practical issues, i.e. uniforms, change rooms. It'll give the legal definitions of where sports clubs are at. And, and it breaks down a lot of the myths. So it's probably the most extensive document I have seen. At the moment, most sports rely on the International Olympic Committee policy, which is pretty much a one-paragraph sentence. You know, it doesn't explain things. So this is going to take things a lot further. It's going to explain a bit more about the, the how, the when, the why, how can people change and the effects of hormones and stuff like that. So I'm heavily been heavily involved in that. I do a lot of work on social media, liaising with journalists, sporting groups. I've actually been helping out South Africa Athletics in their challenge to IAAF policy in recent times with the Casta Semenya appeal over the the IAAF policy to female athletes with a DSC condition. In particular with that, there's some human rights concerns um, with sports policy at the moment at OIC level um, where they've got now testosterone limits to determine the male-female category and they're pretty much a fictional testosterone limit. You know, so there is some human rights issues on that. So it's a work in progress, Shane. It's really a work in progress. The more that we can get out and speak. We're working on a documentary. There's a trans journalist out who is also a, a trans sports person, Carolyn Lake. She's working on creating a documentary where we're going to share a lot of our lived experience, trans athletes, 
And Carolyn was actually the first trans female post-transition to play elite-level sport anywhere in Australia. Um, she, she played State of Origin Women's Rugby League back in about 2007. So, you know, we're working on a few things together and here we are today talking about it. So, yeah. Kirsty Miller, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR and thank you for your work in the community. It's absolutely fantastic. I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we're out of time. But uh, we must catch up again on the radio airwaves. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. Bye. The wonderful Kirsty Miller there. It is two minutes to five. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Taking us out is Simon and Garfunkel with their track A Hazy Shade of Winter on this very warm summer's day here in Melbourne. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.